If you have your Bible, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. If you're visiting with us today and this is your first time to be with us, I recognize that you probably haven't been to a lot of other churches where the pastor is going to talk about head coverings in worship, but that's the nature of the Scriptures. We, we want to walk through the whole of the Scripture and study that which the Lord reveals in His Word. And the reason we do that is because we recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed. We don't have to apologize for it or try to make accommodations for it as if we feel guilty about it. We embrace it and say, what is the Lord communicating to His people? And so when we come to 1 Corinthians 11, you recognize this is a longer flow of a bigger argument. For the last several chapters, the Apostle Paul has warned the young believers in the church at Corinth not to be involved in pagan worship. And he's instructed them on how to think about matters of, of conscience. He guides them with the principle over and over again that, that we're to seek the glory of God and the good of our fellow believers. We come to chapter 11 and it's as though the tone changes. And that is that he, he now wants to address some some concerns that he has about the body of believers themselves. The first is this issue of head coverings. These are abuses taking place in the church. And then the second is the Lord's Supper. If, you're, if you keep walking, we're going to go from 12 to 14, and he's going to talk about the way that some of the young believers in Corinth are misusing their spiritual gifts and don't even understand them. So we start today with this issue of head coverings. And it, I recognize it, it may seem very obscure to us. It was not... The major issue in Corinth, I promise. But it was important enough for the Lord God to place in His Word. And so it's our privilege to read it and study it and apply it for our own walk with Christ. Let's pick up at verse 1 of chapter 11. We'll read, excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 11. We'll read through verse 16. This is God's Word. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For the man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would help us by granting the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. 
So as we open your word, we pray that you would give your people the ears to hear what your spirit says. Would you be willing to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus? Holy Father, we rely entirely upon your spirit to speak to your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Early in ministry, young pastors are notorious for getting really excited about their illustrations. They get so excited about their illustrations that they will give these long, winding illustrations. And quite often, somewhere along the way, the listener loses the point. Older pastors are somewhat notorious for applying the scriptures. And when they apply the scriptures, sometimes people forget where it was that that point was being made. I think at some level we can relate to remembering good illustrations, but maybe not remembering what the point was. Maybe if you've listened to preachers a long time, you can remember good applications, but not even remember exactly where they came from. Well, that's something of what's happened in this passage and how it is generally misunderstood. It's helpful to remember that, that when you pick up 1 Corinthians, you're, you're reading someone else's mail. And we don't know context. And so what people often do is they guess or they try to reconstruct the presumed context. They say, well, maybe this is what it looks like. And so what that consequently does is, is it leaves people staring at the illustration or the application, but misreading the main idea. One fairly standard misread of this particular passage tells us that pious women today need to cover their heads or have long hair. It it misreads it and says that the uncovered head is a sign of arrogance or an unwillingness to, to follow the Bible. While another standard misread is exactly the opposite. Or the entire thing is cultural. Therefore, the whole thing can be dismissed. It's entirely a bygone era. But when you do that, you begin to wonder, well, what else is cultural? What else do we begin to dispense with as if it's only applicable to another time and another place? I think both of those are actually surface readings. Head coverings are not the main point. They're an application of the main point. In fact, the, the passage is actually telling us that, that men and women both bear the image of God. And that, and that both men and women are under the authority of God. And both are to dress and function in ways that are, that are consistent with their God-designed roles. When men are men and women are women, God is most glorified. How so? Because gender is God's creation design. It's not some cultural construct that can be confused or somehow mistaken now, the guy that I study in 1 Corinthians, and I thought he's going to be my go-to guy for all things cultural when I come to that passage. He's the, the guy that I expected to unravel all the mysteries of the passage. He said what I didn't expect him to say. He says Paul places little stock on social or cultural conventions or social status and a great deal of stock in the way that God has made human beings and is remaking them in Christ. So what does it mean to live out our creation design as male and female? What does it mean to redeem God's creation design from the sins of the world? That's where our text takes us this morning. 
And so 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us that we glorify God as we live out and redeem his creation design. The creation design is, is simply this. It's male and female under God's authority. And so our passage affirms that main point with these three supporting ideas. The first comes from culture. The second comes from creation. The third comes from decorum. This is affirmed, you might say illustrated first, in culture. So in a letter that's really sparse on commendation, verse 2 is somewhat unusual. It's an unusual compliment. Look at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now this particular compliment reminds us that these young believers are engaged in, in many parts of the Christian life for which they deserve to be commended wholeheartedly. Martin Lloyd-Jones described the church in Corinth not as an obstinate, stubborn group of believers, but as a, as a group of new believers who need to be taught or shaped. And so in that way, it's not an unhealthy church. It's, it's a church that's young in faith, perhaps vibrant in numbers, full of recent converts to Christianity. And some things they understand and some matters They need to grow to understand. Now, I say all that because tone matters. None of this is is browbeating. None of it is is stubborn. This is instruction to those who simply don't know. Back in Mississippi, I taught or I coached my little kid's five-year-old t-ball team. You learn from that particular lesson that it really makes no sense at all to, to be harsh towards children who don't have a clue where shortstop is. You get down on their level and you say, there's a shortstop. And you, and you take them and you walk them over to shortstop. You don't yell at them. Go to the shortstop. Now say all that because, because Paul recognizes that that's where these people are. They need to be taught and instructed at eye level so that they can say, oh, okay. We want to learn to, to live out what it means to walk with Christ. Verse 3 is, I think, the, the most important portion To help us comprehend the broader point. Take a look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now the word head is used nine times between verses 3 and verse 10. And sometimes it's used metaphorically. Other times it's used like the literal head sitting on top of your shoulders. But in verse 3, it is only used metaphorically. Now the question is, what what does the metaphor mean? Somewhere between the 1950s and the 1960s, biblical scholars began to to say something about this word that it never really meant historically. And that is, they were were trying to recover something that they were afraid of. And so they said, well, we, we believe it means source. In other words, the source of a woman is man. The source of Christ is God. And there's a lot of reasons that that can't hold water. Uh, The first reason is this word head, kafale. Head is always translated in the Bible and and usually translated outside the Bible to mean authority. But very rarely does it mean source and never in the Scriptures. But you really don't have to be some sort of Greek scholar to even figure this out. I I included the Nicene Creed this morning so that you would recognize in this confession of faith 
And one of the reasons to insert this is to show that Jesus and God are one. Church history tells us that the early church fathers were were trying to wrestle with and explain how the unity exists within the Trinity. And so they began to to work through the, the language. And in every case, Jesus is described as begotten and not made. That is, he doesn't flow from God. God is not his source. He is God. So Jesus doesn't come from the source of God. Jesus chooses to come under the authority of God. Not by way of value or importance or even glory. But in role. Head means authority. The problem for current readers is that we, we hate the concept of authority. And I don't just mean by specific genders we hate it. I mean all of us hate the concept of authority. And the reason that word is so foul in our language is because it's been so often misused. So do we go to the text and change what the text says? Or do we actually try to redeem what the word has originally meant? Oftentimes we think of the authority and we think of decision making and we think of leadership. We think of making the rules. We think of being the boss. We think of being the CEO of a company and and always when somebody else is the CEO of the company, I'm under them. I don't like that. But you see, the way the Bible describes authority is very different from that. This particular passage is about honor and shame and glory. And God gets His honor and glory when His creation functions as He intended it. God's authority over Jesus means that Jesus gives honor to God. But in no way does it diminish the honor that is due to Christ. Is He lesser God? Not in the least. The head of every man is Christ. Meaning the authority over man is Christ. That means in God's creation design, I as a man direct the honor that is due to Christ for His self-sacrificing work on the cross. And all that does is amplify His name. It doesn't diminish who I am in the least. The head of a wife is her husband. That doesn't mean that every man is over every woman. It's not what it means at all. What does it mean? It means that the authority structure inside the home is this. The husband receives honor from his wife, not because he's better than his wife, but because God created this image to illustrate Christ and His church, to mirror Christ. And so this husband serves his bride the way Christ serves His church, dying to himself, serving with a self-giving love. The husband is honored in his home for serving, not for domineering. The last part says that the head of Christ is God. Meaning God the Son gives honor to the Father because honor is due to the Father. Is Christ less than God? Not in the least. Does his willingness to give honor to God somehow diminish the honor that is due to him? Not in the least. In fact, his ability and willingness to give honor amplifies his own honor. 
Wives, the same is true for you. Your willingness to extend honor to your husband does not diminish your own honor. It doesn't diminish your own dignity in the least. It actually amplifies your honor and dignity of God's creation design because in this honor and beauty, it it, it reflects and mirrors Christ to God. And the mistaken assumption in this passage is to presume that we're talking about layers. And layers always make us think a, a hierarchy of importance, like the, like the organizational structure of the big firm. Man over woman, Christ over man, God over Christ. But can anybody with half a theological brain say that God is more important than Jesus? No. That can't be what's going on here. And so even if I do have to redeem the word authority, it's still a misunderstanding to read it as hierarchy. The wife honors her husband. The husband honors Christ. Christ honors God. Isn't it true that both husbands and wives should honor Christ? Aren't both husbands and wives to likewise honor God? As if this was a hierarchy of importance, I contend it's totally different. Paul's meaning this. Just as Christ honors God, so also husbands and wives in their God-ordained roles complement one another for the honor of Christ. And the reality is that when a Christian husband lives out his biblical manhood, it gives honor to his Lord Jesus and it blesses his wife. When verse 3, excuse me, when a Christian wife lives out her biblical womanhood, it profoundly gives honor to Christ and blesses her husband. And so when verse 3 makes sense, then the rest of the text begins to fall into place. Figuring out whether we're talking about a head covering or hair or a veil isn't nearly as important as the honor directed to the Lord when men are men and women are women for the glory of God. Verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with a head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, if we misread this, you're going to think that I am giving greater honor than the rest of you men with hair. And that is, I'm shorn to give my great honor to the Lord God. That's not what's going on in the passage. Challenge here is, To understand when he's using the word head metaphorically. Let me see if I can simplify it like this. The head that would be dishonored if a woman doesn't cover her head literally. Is not her husband and his reputation. But rather her husband's metaphorical head. That is Christ. You see, what the the, the passage is telling us 
is something that they understood in first century Corinth. And that is, in, in this particular culture, a woman must cover her head in order to honor Christ in worship, and a man must uncover his head in order to honor Christ in worship. That is cultural application for Paul's first audience. But what's the main point? Before we get there, let me explain how it looked in ancient Corinth. We don't know all the details. But we do know that when pagan men came to sacrifice to pagan gods, they would take the train of their robe or some either frontwards or backwards and they would pull it up over their head. And they would make these sacrifices to the pagan gods. On the other hand, pagan women had no opportunity to worship or be a part of pagan worship except in the form of being mistreated by men. And so often... That meant those women who were involved in pagan worship wore no veil. Their heads were shaved. Of course, you understand that there was in the broader culture the the sense that that honorable Greek women would, would cover their heads as everyone else did in the culture. Paul says, don't be like the pagans. In Judaism, likewise, women are not even allowed to enter the outer courts. They're not allowed to draw near to the worship of the living God. And so the the essence of what Paul says here is Christian worship is completely different. Women are, in this sense, equal with men. But both men and women dress in culturally appropriate ways so that they might honor Christ. If you're a man, you dress like a man. For a woman, you dress like a woman. That may be totally unpopular in the broader culture. That's totally fine. It would have been unpopular in Paul's day as well. But the point is this. Coming to worship on a Sunday morning, what you wear says something about the direction of the gaze that you want to have offered. Is it directed towards me? How I look, or do I want honor pointing to Christ? Where do I want other people's eyes? Does your clothing overly draw attention to you or to portions of your body that might distract from Christ? It's actually how cultural application applies in every culture. More than that, it's, it's clear from the passage that both men and women pray and they, and they prophesy. That would also be very radical in first century religion. You mean your women are are present? They're active participants in worship? Yes. Because women bear the image of God, says Paul. And they also reflect his glory. And they also bring their voices to praise our Father in heaven. So it is that the passage is actually telling us that the gates of God's mercy is wide open for males and females together alike. And look, you're sitting next to males and females and this seems so normal to you. Let's be really clear. The Bible never oppresses women. The Bible redeems women for the oppression that men have always inflicted on them through paganism. And so everything that Paul does is to restore the nature of the beauty of God's design in womanhood. 
in the Bible, prophecy is, is not what you might think. It's not always just to predict the future. It's rather to speak things about God. And so when you take 1 Corinthians here and you put it in context with the rest of the New Testament, it lifts women out of paganism and all the dishonor that they were given. It doesn't mean they begin preaching in public worship. Paul's going to address that later. He's also going to say it in 1 Timothy 2. We'll talk about the fact in a few weeks that spiritual gifts are, are given to both males and females and they are to be used in different contexts, but always for His glory. You see, we, live, we glorify God as we live out and redeem His creation design. It can be affirmed or illustrated in this cultural picture. It can also be affirmed or illustrated in creation. That's his second point. You see, God's creation design was in the beginning perfect. Man was created from the dust of the ground. Woman was created from the rib of Adam. And Adam bears the image of God. And Eve bears the image of God. And then in in the text, the only thing that's described as not good is Genesis 2.18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Meaning I will make a complement that's suited to fit him. It's a crucial background when you come to verse 7. It says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the woman, but woman for man. The creation itself, says Paul, testifies to the interdependence between male and female. And God designed it that way. In the home, in the church, interdependence is always meant to bring glory to God who created it. Genesis 1 tells us that males and females both bear the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that the details of how that creation took place. Man created from dust. He's all alone. A rib taken from the side of Adam so that Eve might be created. But of course, from there forward, every man is born of woman. Sometimes people take a look at verse 9. And they think that a woman was created for a man's use. For a man's purposes. Because the text says, man was not created for woman, but woman for man. I'm going to borrow from an Australian scholar that I found really helpful this week. The original language, of course, this word dia is used in a lot of different ways. But here it, it, it cannot mean for the use of. It means on account of. On account of? One woman was created on account of? On account of what? The woman was created on account of man's need. What was Adam's need? It's not good for a man to be alone. Adam needed her. So married men, I trust you know in the quiet of your own mind that you are better with her than you could ever be alone. You're a better man for having a godly wife. Likewise, the text goes on to say a a woman needs the man. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, 
Woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. It's God's design in the church that there should be both men and, and women. It's God's design in the, in the Christian home that there should be both men and women. And it's God's way of, of blessing the woman to have a godly husband. It's God's designed blessing to, in, the, in the home for a husband to have a godly wife. And do you know what the interdependence does? It says, isn't God glorious for having been so grand and creative? This letter has a lot to say about singleness. We covered some of that back in chapter 6. This isn't the place where Paul addresses singleness. Here he just wants to address biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. And he's speaking... To married new Christians, fresh out of paganism, where so much of their lives had been over-sexualized, where manhood and womanhood was bent and marred by past sins. And they bring all this baggage as they come to faith in Christ, and some of them are still confused about gender roles. Their confusion would have sounded like this. Surely you come to faith in Christ, you've got to be a little less of a man than I used to be. Surely I come to faith in Christ, I need to be lesser female. I mean, wouldn't I want to be less than all the perversion that I once was? Paul says no. No, you come to faith in Christ and you're going to become more than you ever were. Because Christ redeems his creation design in you. So that you live out these gender roles in such a way that they reflect His glory, the one who bore His image on His people. Gender isn't man-made, it's God-made. Likewise, the creation design tells us that we are also not meant to be individuals. We're meant to be male and female in the church. And here is a blessing. And that way it doesn't matter whether you're married or single. You come into the body of believers and there is a blessing of being interdependent with other genders inside the church. Men functioning as men. Women functioning as women. Husbands functioning as husbands. Wives functioning as wives. All that interdependence brings glory to the one who made it all. Back in 1995... My RUF campus minister, I respected very much, he said, you know, in the coming years, you'll watch and people will become, men will become more feminized, women will become more masculine, and that's going to be true in the surrounding culture. So here we are 26 years later, that's where we are, that's where we are as a culture, and while that Cultural confusion is is sad. That's not the way it is in the church. See, it really doesn't matter what time or place or cultural context you pick. There is no culture that has ever valued and understood biblical manhood or womanhood. But the church has always valued it. Because it points to the wonder and creativity of our God. He is majestic. 
We glorify God as we live out and redeem his creation design. He's given us a cultural application, a creation application. Now he affirms it from this sense of decorum. Uh, Verse 13 kind of gives us some hints of what the probable issue in Corinth is. Look at it. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? From the very beginning of this letter, there's always been a confusion over what it means to be spiritual. Do you remember that? Well, some are striving to be spiritual. And to some, the concept of being spiritual was to embrace and enjoy these newfound freedoms in Christ. So much so that you embrace all the culture has more than Christ. You embrace food, you embrace drink, you embrace sex as if liberation is what leads, excuse me, liberation means the same as license. On the other hand, the concept of spiritual was to throw off cultural stereotypes, cultural practices. I have no interest in trying to stand here and reconstruct what is probably going on in the nature of the problem from a source of guesses. But it's very clear that proper or decent women in civil society in Corinth covered their heads. It was actually the disgraced It was actually the mistreated women who were left shorn of hair or unveiled. That's Corinth. That's first century Corinth. That's not Auburn. And so verse 14, look at it. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Uh, Nature affirms this. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, the natural, but, but, but when he says nature affirms this, he means these are the natural feelings of the contemporary culture into which I write. Most men in the context had shorter hair. Most women had longer hair. And he's using the hair thing to explain decorum in the culture. And he often affirms this in that sense by talking about something long or flowing coming off the top of the head of a woman. Is this a sin issue? Uh, No, not unless you want to accuse the Apostle Paul of sin. Because Acts chapter 18, verse 18 tells us that when Paul came through Corinth, he actually grew his hair long under a vow. And then when he left Corinth, he cut that hair. Two rhetorical questions. And those two rhetorical questions reveal the repeated themes. Honor, shame. Shame is often described as disgrace, glory. Honor, shame, glory. And so even if you can, from a pulpit, break down this passage into three nice, neat components. Cultural, creation, decorum. It would be a massive mistake to read the supporting applications and illustrations as if they were the main point. Over the years as a child, I got the privilege of watching my dad do woodworking. I've gotten to watch friends of mine who became very good at woodworking. And by watching those others, I've learned to see and appreciate the sense of of the grains of wood. People who specialize in hardwood floors do the same thing. They always want to bring out the the beauty that, that rests in those grains of wood. They want to bring those grains of wood to your eyes. And so it is that when you come to a passage like this, the most natural and best way to read the passage is is to follow the grains of wood. What direction do they go? To follow the underlying beauty of the point. 
And let those beauties rise to the surface. This isn't primarily to tell you that a woman needs to cover her hair when she comes into the Alumni Center. This isn't primarily about whether a man needs to take off his baseball cap when he prays. The application to the point has had a lot of different applications in lots of different contexts over the centuries. But ultimately, if I want to come to this passage, I want to follow the grains of wood, the beauty that the Lord has laid down here. And when you follow those grains of wood, you begin to see that your Savior is pictured in those grains of wood. Christ is is the flow of the grain. At verse 3, we saw that this entire passage is about honor, shame, glory. That's the substance of what we need to consider when we come into worship. When we live out our lives in the world as male and female. Who's receiving the honor for my life? Who carries the shame? Who receives glory? Is any of this about me? Honor and glory originally belonged to our triune God. And he shared some of that honor and glory with his creation beings. He put that glory... He put that honor in them. And there was no such thing as shame. The Bible tells us that they were naked and unashamed. And then they sinned against God. And shame entered the world. And Christ laid down his glory. And came to earth to bear the shame of the cross. So for God's people, there's actually no more dishonor. There's no more shame that God's people must bear. There's no more reason for us to live in ways that dishonor our bodies or our heads or our minds. You belong to Christ. Well, Jesus came to redeem his creation design, to recover it. To get it back. And so we glorify God as we live out and redeem his creation design. Let's pray.